to this hot topic debate hoted by me. Hoted, hoted over. <laughs> uh, hello and welcome to this hot topic debate hosted by me, Ollie, from the History Emporium and Powers podcast. In my wisdom or stupidity, I thought what the world lacks is six podcast hosts all in one place for an epic episode that will be available via the podcast. We have Caitlin from Oklahoma, USA, Chris from Sheffield, UK. Joe from Lancaster, UK, Elliot from South London, UK, although he is an Australian, Jackson from Peterborough, UK, and me from Hertfordshire, UK. So, I'm going to jump straight into it. As historians, a lot of our first experiences with real-life history objects are from museums. It's what sparks our interest and has introduced many non-historians to objects from the past. However, a lot of these objects are not native to the country they are in. They were taken usually by force and unlawfully. I'm going to start with you, Christopher. What is your opinion on the subject? Uh, yes, they should go back because they're stolen. Done. We're finished. Hey, <laughs> easy as that. Um, no, I think it's, um, it's an important question to ask. Um, a, a lot of countries, I think, are being asked it at the moment as well. Um, in the kind of global pursuit of equality and, and fairness. Um, ultimately, if you boil it down to like property law, if something is taken unlawfully, it should be given back to the original owner. Obviously, I know it's a lot more complicated than that, and I'm sure we'll get into the details of that. But, um, I mean, I don't want to go too much on a tangent right now, so I'll open the, kind of the floor up to other people. But ultimately, if something's been taken without without permission, yeah, it should probably go back. What about you, Elliot? You were, recently went to the British Museum, I believe. Yeah, got... yeah. Um, yeah. I think in my perspective, it's it's a bit more complicated in the sense that if the nation state that it's being returned to exists, in the case of Greece, then yes, I think it should be. But, I mean, personally, my favourite section in the British Museum is the Assyrian section. And as far as I know, Assyria hasn't been a nation state for, what, 3,000 years? That's not Syria, that's Assyria, right? So if you, if you give it back, who are you giving it back to? So I guess that's the, the, the crux of my argument there. But in the case of most of it, like the Benin bronzes or whatever they're called and all the Greek artefacts, yeah, they should go. Okay. So, Caitlin, I've not been to many museums uh, over in the States. I have in the big cities uh, like New York. I went to the native... Um, uh, tribes Museum over there. Um, what is it like over there for having um, European history or um, native uh, objects from different places? So I've actually never been to the museums in New York. Like I've never actually been to the East Coast. So like, I'll just go ahead and reiterate. I'm like out in the middle of the United States. So like flyover states, like we have a lot of um, Native American indigenous like culture, cultural artifacts here. And there is a legislation called NAGPRA, and a lot of museums actually have specialists where um, if there are human remains, like cultural and ceremonial objects that are in museums, they're supposed to contact the tribe and then give them back. So that's okay. kind of how it works here. So that's quite interesting, actually. So there's an active um, sort of group that are, are, are willing to give objects back to the people that they came from. That's really interesting. Well, there's like... like there's le the legislation is like through like the government so like they have to so 
and then like it can get kind of sticky like depending on like the museum and the tribes like if they don't want to give things back but that's just like on a museum by museum basis yeah absolutely um what about you joe well i i get the idea that they should go back to to where they were originally and that it is the property of those countries the only thing and i think it was sort of um, an a happy accident with a lot of the artifacts that were brought over from grand tours and from people taking things that maybe they shouldn't through paperwork that maybe wasn't 100% legal is sort of like the proliferation of artifacts from one particular culture around the world and how that's kind of preserved the culture because you look at things like what happened when um, ISIS just decided that they were going to destroy Palmyra um, that, that has happened through history and will continue to, um, thinking about how all the statues in Paris were just um, burnt down for metal by the Nazis, all of those historical things, that even though the way that they were disseminated around the world was wrong, the idea that they should all just be piled back into one place because that's the cultural where they're from, it, it's difficult because, again, when you're talking about sparking people's imaginations, there were mummies and Egyptian artifacts in a museum in Liverpool which is one of the very first things I remember. And I would never, um, you know, as a young guy from Southport, be able to just go uh, pop over to Egypt to see those things in situ. So while I think there's the precedent is it should be given back if it's, you know, right to, and if that place is stable, there should always be a discussion around just not putting all your eggs in one basket, especially from, um, you know, cultures where the country may not have been as stable over the past couple of decades or centuries mm. yeah that's interesting what about you jackson yeah uh, kind of just following on from what elliot and joe said that for the good of some of these artifacts it might not be the best thing for them to return you know some of these artifacts are receiving specialist care multi-million pound care you know the the british museum has a multi-million pound budget to look after these artifacts if they were to return can these host countries actually afford to look after these artifacts? Can they actually afford to maintain the preservation at the same level they are now? Um, you know, largely, I think I'd, I'd disagree with the fact that they could preserve them at the same level because some of these things are centuries, millennia old. Um, and you, you need specialist care that sometimes is only available in these high, high profile, ultra high budget museums. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, on the subject for myself, I'm really torn between the two ideas because museums are where we first find, well, it's where I first found my love of history. So being able to go to the British Museum, for example, and see a, um, a Roman ruin or some Egyptian artefacts, that was incredible. Like, that really, really sparked my interest in history. However, on a political stance, we all know that I'm very much a leftist and I'm very much why if the if the host nation asks for them back why should we deny that of the host nation just because we think we can do things better yeah I mean surely uh, there are better ways to repay these countries for colonial actions uh, you know, whilst whilst we've like, we have taken and seized artifacts against these uh, host countries' will, sometimes it's the best place for them to be here. But surely there's better ways of doing it. You know, uh, China. I think China technically owns all the pandas in the world, and they loan them out. 
um, upon these these special deals. And I think Egypt owns a huge proportion of the mummies that are in the world's museums. It's just that they're on a permanent loan at that museum. So, you know, there's there's different ways. Of, I think there should be different ways of doing it where maybe the right is hosted or the, the right is held by the, the host country or the original country who held it, but it's now you know, looked after and maintained by the countries who are able to. If there's a regular payment involved to the host country, then it's up to the host country politically if they want to invest in the infrastructure and the sort of equipment that they would need to then repatriate it safely, or if they feel that actually it would be better to continue to receive the funding uh, that they are in terms of people paying for that loan to spend on other infrastructure uh, for the benefit of the people. That way, although the artifact is in a different country, it is still benefiting the people and hopefully benefiting them culturally uh, in, in, in their home state. Uh, are any artifacts, for example, in the British Museum being paid for at the current time? I don't even know that was an actual an no, agreement, that was more right? of an idea. Ah, okay, right, 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 yeah. Idealistic. Yeah, Unfo yeah, yeah unfortunately, there's government legislation in the UK here that prevents and protects uh, museums from having to return artifacts to, to the previous countries. Um, so it's kind of there just to protect the British Museum from losing. Really? Um, I did not know yeah. that. I can't remember that's, exactly that's what it's intense. called. Yeah. Okay. The other argument is that um, the prestige items from all of these classical civilizations, the big ticket items that people want to see, mean that often it, it takes the, the space over sort of like your local history, your British history. Mm. I mean, one of my favorite uh, museums is a museum of local history in Preston, a uh, museum of Lancashire history. And it's, it's not as flashy because it's stuff like, you know, plows from the start of the revolution and different factory machines, but it, it, it does give more of a sense of place into where you are and I worry that sometimes with the British Museum the focus is more on other cultures than, than our own mm. Mm. and I mean that's one of the issues as an adult that I had with the British Museum, to me it's just an advertisement of empire mm. um, which we all know that I've got a problem with <laughs> um, uh, looking back on, on uh, from modern eyes I, I mean I think it's I think it's great that it's there, but I also think if, if host nations want them back, then actually there should be... And they can care for the items, then actually there should be no conversation. But who determines if they can care for them? The British Museum, the host country? Because is yeah. it their right to just take it back if they were just going to smash them into pieces if they chose to? Yeah, if you've got a negative sort of regime in who wanted yeah. to completely whitewash the culture and change the narrative... Would, would it be acceptable? Mm. That's a very good mm. question, actually. Well, I mean, and what's the legal frame as well? Because, so, if somebody tends to... If, if somebody has an item for a certain amount of time, like, legally, it becomes theirs, um, in British law, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, does it now officially belong to Britain? Is it Britain's... Um, sorry, Caitlin, I'm focusing on Britain because that's what I know about. <laughs> um, but we will, okay. we will get to America. We will get there. Um, and Australia, actually, I want to ask a few questions about um, how it's done, sort of so that way. In terms of those frameworks, um, I think the like the frameworks are probably already there. You know, we have UNESCO, who who look after these World Heritage sites and provide funding through the UN for these World Heritage sites. So it's there is an international body beholden to an international organisation, which 
does help say what's culturally important to the world and outlines how these things should be looked after. You know, the UNESCO sites are you know, in every continent, in almost every country. So why do we need new framework when this, when something's already there that could probably take over that kind of level? I think for me, history and museums in specifically have three jobs and in this order it's especially for museums it's to protect it's to educate and then it's to entertain um i think obviously everything we've just said i think is it kind of marries up with what i think about like a a moral um like very objective very blue sky thinking kind of looking at things like yes amazing all these people deserve to have their you know they have their history back you know if somebody stole stonehenge and just put it in a, I don't know, a museum in Mozambique, I think we'd all probably like it back. But let's flip the tape, you know, flip it a little bit on its head and say Mozambique is a, you know, a first world country and, you know, we're the more developing country. Would we then be the best people to look after Stonehenge? Do you know what I mean? It's a very, very, very difficult question with so many levels to it. But... You know, like we've just said, who is the best person or the best body to decide? Who gets to decide what is safe and what isn't safe? Yeah, that's um, really interesting. That's really interesting. So ultimately, who makes that decision? Yeah. And like Jackson's just alluded to, there are, you know, organizations, global organizations that are out there that should and can do that job. One thing that always baffles me specifically, again, about the British Museum is the Rosetta Stone. Mm. Rosetta Stone is arguably the key to, not to be dramatic, but civilization, to language that we, you know, as we know it today, and it's in a room in London. Why? But also on that, why would it be anywhere else? Isn't the British Museum the best place in the world to protect that absolutely priceless piece of global history? Yeah, um, and should, I, Does it I, go back to Egypt? Where does it go? I think you've touched on a really interesting point there because it's a lot of those things in the British Museum were taken out of when there was a lot of conflict in, you know, especially after World War, you know, when the Ottoman Empire fell apart. It's almost like if Britain didn't get to them, would they still be here today, right? And because of that, do we now, not we, I'm not even British, do we have an ownership of um, that artifact now in that case, you know? Yeah. I think there's something... Oh, sorry. Uh, Uh, I think there's there's also something to be said about the popularity about these museums as well, is that you know four of the top ten museums in the world, most popular museums in the world, are British, um, and they don't use the word ownership. They don't say that they own these artifacts. They say that they're protecting these artifacts and they they're conserving them. So I don't think there's I think there's a lot of a uh, semantics into it where we're looking at the word ownership but is it ownership is it are we are we claiming that it's ours because i don't think you know you walk into these rooms in the museum it's not the brit like it's not the british egyptian room it's mm. the egyptian history room um so i think there's a there's like we're guardianship of these items as opposed to ownership i think that isn't semantic it, difference isn't it ironic it's called the british museum and nothing in it is actually British. 
<laughs> Ironically, I just I just want to jump to um, across the pond because obviously um, Oklahoma is very different to the big cities in 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 the US. So, what kind of museums do you have, sort of your way, Caitlin? And what have you you kind of um, what kind of got you into like interested into history like via the museum route? Um. We have a, like just in Oklahoma, we have a national cowboy museum actually in Oklahoma City, which is like one of my favorite museums in the world. Like my dad actually like uh, took us there, me and my sister growing up. So, um, you know, you had like all of the cowboy culture, like the Native American like paintings and they have some like artifacts there that are, I guess they're allowed to be there. I'm not really sure. I don't know how NAGPRA works with them, but there's also like a pioneer woman museum that's up in Ponca city. And then there are just little art museums that are around. And then we have like, they're like dinosaur museums and stuff that are like around here too, which are actually kind of cool. Amazing. So you, you went to the, um, the cowboy museum not that long ago, didn't you? Cause I saw some posts yeah. on your Instagram and, um, we got chatting about how I would love to do line dancing. And I found right. out that you, that you could actually do line dancing. And I'm very jealous. It's not hard. Like they're, I, I could teach you or like YouTube. It's not, it's not hard. <laughs> I mean, you're talking to me. It, it probably is hard. Um, <laughs> like my sister says, I can't dance at all. And like, if I can do it, I know you can do it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That, I, I need that message every day. Like, you can do yeah, it. You Ollie. saw the, the 20 minute debacle just to get this, to get Ollie into a Zoom room. So I'm, 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 I'm just saying. Are you shaming me, Chris, on my own podcast? <laughs> I would never do such a thing. I, would I guess that's, that's one of the things about the sort of the idea of museums and a lot of the big museums will share and will loan things out but some of the smaller museums who don't have those big ticket things if a cowboy museum as much as my wife is dead into the sort of outlaw culture the western culture and would love it um you're probably not going to have as much pulling power saying well we'll give you some of our artifacts mm. if you give us some of yours against some of the big museums so can I just ask how I know that the relationship is problematic, but in terms of the relationship with the the Native Americans and their artifacts in museums, how how problematic is that in in America? I think it really depends on the museum and the tribe. So like I don't want to speak to anyone specific because they do vary by situation. So sorry, I was just taking a massive gulp of water there. <laughs> I um I think the local museum so obviously the, the the cowboy museum in Oklahoma is very local specific to yourselves. It's actually pretty like it's a pretty broad museum like it's in Oklahoma City which is kind of like in the the middle of Oklahoma and like it's like a national museum but it's oh. more I guess more like a of a niche kind of thing cuz like the the cowgirl museum is down in Fort Worth, Texas. So oh, okay that's interesting that they're separated. Mhm. By a lot <laughs> it's a big country though I mean, it is a on. very big country it is. Um, I'm going to jump to Australia now Elliot you are representing Team Australia alright here we go <laughs> um, so what are obviously um, we all know the history of Australia and how um, British colonies kind of went over there and um, sort of took land from the native Australians and uh, sent convicts over there as well as um, people wanting new lives etc so what again the same question really as Jackson like what's 
do you have native Australian museums and um, is it harmonious? Is there some issues there? Like, tell me about the museums that you remember. It's actually kind of topical because I literally just finished writing a podcast on an indigenous um, hero today, a guy called Pemelwoy. So when the British came here, they came to the east coast of Australia, which is where the majority of the people live. And um, once they got there, there was a few tribes around. He was from a one called Bidjigal, the Bidjigal tribe. And so pretty much the idea was he, he fought them back and stuff like that um, for, for about 12 years, which was impressive. But in terms of artifacts and museums, because Aboriginal people were generally nomadic and tools were, um, I don't want to, I think basic is the wrong word, but they were rudimentary in the sense that they only needed to do what they needed to do with them, right? There was no wheels or anything like that. There was clubs and boomerangs, of course, which you've probably seen, didgeridoos and spears and stuff like that. So the, the museums that I've been to, especially in around Melbourne where I lived, were a lot more just celebrating the culture itself and, um, you know, uh, saying what they could to, to keep it in memory and stuff like that, rather than here's a, a castle they built or something, because that just wasn't common. It's more irrigation techniques and um, how the stories were passed down through tradition and their own kind of religious stories, which were called the Dreamtime stories. So stuff like that. So I assume in a, some way that's a bit similar to some Native American tribes, I imagine, who were a bit more maybe nomadic and less sedentary. Mm. <laughs> Isn't it um, ironic that um, in these places, America, Australia, the British had a hand in that? As, like, everywhere they go, they seem to like cause trouble. They put their, they got their like tentacles around the whole world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially in Australia, it was like a crash course in civilization because they've been cut off for was it five thousand years at least since it's, anyone else had made it across, and suddenly it was. Yeah. Here's what we've been doing in those five thousand years. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's, people seem to think that Australian culture started you know, with the first fleet, but it's, um, it's meant to be the oldest culture in the world. So 50,000 years is a conservative estimate of how long these people have been there. I mean, that is so, so, so long, you know? Um, and it's, yeah, it's super interesting. Like a guy about, I think in 2016, he like pulled, he was driving on a remote streak of highway and he pulled over for a cave to go answer the call of nature. And he went to this cave and there was... Uh, tools and like rock art that was like 30,000 years old just like in the middle of the cave like, I mean undisturbed. Australia is insanely big isn't it yeah, a lot of people huge. live around the coast there's kind of not a Most lot in them. the middle mm. um, yeah and, and, and Joe there's a link there between um, where you're living now in Australia because a lot of people were convicted in the town that you the city that you live in um, of Lancaster um, uh, and were sent to Australia so They're probably related, Joe. <laughs> I know, you've got the height in common. <laughs> um, it's, it's just it, the idea of trying to capture that. I mean, that's a really good point. Museums are very good for capturing some very static and almost you've got to have reached a certain amount of civilization to, to build those things or a certain amount of... Um, you've got to have reached the stage where you are putting down roots in one particular place and where you are building... Um, you know your castles and your cities in order to you know have all of those things that we'd consider to go into a museum whereas a, a culture that is mainly based around traveling and being able to sort of follow the seasons and do it that way mm. that there are very few things that they would have left because they didn't have these big cities they probably did all meet up at various times and in various mm. places but it was very much a we'll meet up and then we'll all disperse again 
oral traditions over you know physical things some something i'm finding quite interesting across it is that there's in an aspect of it there's colonialism for all of it that the um the western frontier the turner thesis and then again the the colonization of australia is that there seems to be from definitely my position there seems to be a lot more acknowledgement of what's happened in australia and, and the us than there is in the uk and of our colonial history and maybe having these artifacts in the museum is probably one of the better ways to educate to educate the british people about our past you know we we, we sit at school thinking we're all we've been saints for the past a thousand years and to be quite honest we haven't we we were one of the greatest like or most brutal regimes in history um and i think museums will help educate the british public because we're mm. not taught it in school about the colonial past so that's interesting so it's almost like reframing what we've been taught already yeah. so the artifacts are there but actually let's give a bit more information about that i, I think like australia do it quite well with the the rugby indigenous jerseys uh where yeah. they highlight that culture yeah i think uh, we've started fixing it recently because we've had a pretty bad past with how we've treated our indigenous community with like the stolen generation i'm not sure if you heard of that that oh, was yeah. like yeah yeah it's I, um, I haven't please it was in, it was from like the 1910s to the 1960s or so lots of aboriginal children were just taken from their families and given to white families with the idea that they can raise them better so there's a lot to apologize for and that's just like one of a few things so i think there's been in the last 10 15 years a lot more reconciliation at least efforts made in the right direction so i mean i don't watch rugby so i haven't seen the jersey to be fair but yeah <laughs> so do you think i mean i feel like we're living in quite a woke generation like everyone's kind of looking back and and, and um i mean obviously there was the the, the murder of george floyd over um mm -hmm. in the states which sparked a worldwide conversation about how sort of indigenous people people of color etc have been treated and actually how we need to rewrite our history and be a bit honest because mm. um caitlin i don't know if you know uh, uh so our history curriculum here we kind of get taught about the slave trade but we get taught that it was very much an american thing it's kind of very much skipped over that the british were ever part of that um conversation uh, that that um sort of process and um now people are is that a crow sorry it's horrible that was um that was to be, that to be fair ollie i just i just looked at the first slave the first official slave in america and that was done by a welshman so well oh. not an englishman yeah Finally, we weren't the first to do something shit. You're yeah. off the hook. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, I think it's really important that actually we re we retell that tale with the whole truth, um, and it's not to make anyone feel guilty now because as a nation or as I mean, people we weren't there. Everyone but who did it died as well, so it's not like we're we're going and dragging people in front and like telling them off for stuff we're just acknowledging mm. our past and how bad we were mm. absolutely absolutely and I think with, with what jackson was saying with the the museums having to say that they're custodians i think they also need to acknowledge that most i mean the very first museum in oxford um the ashmolean i think it's called you know that was someone's private collection that he gifted to oxford it was basically the prototype for a, a museum but 
it was it was rich people going away and taking things to show off their power and I think we do need to acknowledge that even if we're saying well museums have changed what they are this is this is how they started this is definitely how they started in England it was people who had a lot of things and needed some extra money allowing people to see the things that they'd taken mm -hmm. in order to sort of improve their own mm. finances and so long as you do that and so long as you're engaged in um, working with the places where it came from that's true acknowledgement rather than semantically saying well we're custodians now so the past doesn't matter I feel like it's a uh, uh, so I'm not a massive fan of private art collections or private museum goods if you're going to have it, let everyone see it. <laughs> it's um, it, it, it shouldn't be hidden away from people. Let let people see it if it's there. But I just wanted to jump over to Caitlin. So, um, so I want we... I want to add something to what yes, I think Joe too. said. Please so, do. how museums in the past have been kind of I guess catered to like the wealthier population. I think over the past year with COVID and everything, a lot of museums have actually moved their collections online. They've become digital. You can like go through and like on like, it's like Google culture or something and you can walk mm. through different museums digitally. So I think that's something else that we could um, think about moving forward, you know, having these artifacts in the collections, like maybe give them back to the country, but ask them if it would be okay if we took like digital images and then like maybe like put it into an app or something or like had the little scan things like on the wall that you can go through like the museum and it pops up so then like the culture the artifacts have been returned to their culture but everyone can still learn from them if that now makes sense now that's an interesting idea because um let's face it technology is not going anywhere it's only going to get right. bigger and better um so we're in the early stages of having um holograms or um, mm -hmm. uh, pictures projected on the wall that are 3D so that's an interesting point that actually you could probably potentially still have an item in several museums but mm -hmm. not the original but a, a scan of it or, or in a, a digital way of looking at the item in front of you uh, I think that like would 3D just printing I, I just mm. like I don't know who would go to no, well, I know for the London Museum you don't pay, but generally I don't know who would go all the way to a museum to see something like that, right? When you could just do it online or on your computer or something like that. At least that's mm -hmm. the way. I mean, I was talking to um, Chris actually the other week about the Bayou Tapestry, and I looked it up quickly, and I was like, oh, it's in Reading. And he's like, no, that's not the real one in Reading. I was like, oh, I'm not going to bother then. Even though it's the exact <laughs> same thing, it's just like, oh, well, I'll wait to see it in France properly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I mean... Museums kind of have to keep up to date, don't they? I mean, a lot of museums now are quite interactive because as technology has, has, has gone forward, our attention span is shorter, let's be honest. Um, we watch a 30-second clip and we think it's too long. Um, so it, they, they kind of need to keep up to date. Um, and a lot of these museums are having more interactive um, things. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea of having digital... Uh, items alongside maybe some real items, maybe a mixture of the two. Yeah, it's, I think that could work. A, I think a problem with that is that you actually have to not just think about the the safety of the goods, then the artifacts. You actually have to think about people's mental health. You know, you you take a day out, uh, go and look at these museums, and you're taking a day off everything. You know, you you're sitting on like like we're doing right now. We're sitting in front of our screens all day. Is is the first thing someone going to want to do in their downtime away from a screen is that 
go and look at a screen and go and look at some of these artifacts or do they actually want to go out and if they can touch it touch it feel it uh, mm. touch the same spot someone touched a thousand years ago to learn that history feel that history uh, I, th I feel that on a screen it's probably going to look a little bit more distant and remote and you won't quite feel the gravity of it you know you go to Hol like you if you went to Auschwitz or <laughs> you went to the uh, the fields on Flanders you don't like you see a picture and you're like oh yeah okay I get it but then when you go there you actually feel the gravity you actually feel the how horrible the these people well the, the horrendous situation these people mm -hmm. found themselves in do you feel that on technology I've got to agree with the Auschwitz thing when you when you go there you yeah. spend a lot less time reading things and it's a lot more the the emotional connection mm. with the place and and understanding what what actually happened there and just trying to come to terms with the fact that what you're seeing killed thousands of people mm -hmm. is you couldn't really I don't think you could replicate that so would you would you be opposed to a mixture I mean maybe not the death camps because that would be disrespectful but having a mix of technology I mean they do it already they've started to do it put technology in museums so touch screens and stuff yeah yeah mm. so having things that are a little bit more interactive like having um, laser projection projections of, of what I don't know a castle used to look like over different centuries so then you can get an idea of what it looked like and then potentially have what's left or what's standing next there's, to it there's a halfway house between the two where it doesn't necessarily have to be um, the real artifacts and the real things and it doesn't have to be technology because I know in um, America down near Plymouth Rock uh, they have living museums where actors um, will dress up in period costume none of the things are actually of the time but it gives you that sense um, coming closer to home I know we have the living museum somewhere down south that has all the old buildings that were moved. There's one in Birmingham mm. the Black Country Living Museum Yeah. Um, but the, I mean they are original structures that have been taken down um, but then we've got to look at so Britain or England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales is old <laughs> There's we, we, we I think we take for granted that we can we can walk down the road and see a 13th century church just standing there and we walk past it every day. And mm. I mean, I've just got a job in a palace, which is very exciting, but I drive across a moat bridge that was built in um, 1470 every day. <laughs> and it doesn't phase me at all because it's just there. Um, but I mean, like obviously Elliot being from Australia and Caitlin being from America, like would you get excited by having older structures where you're from like take it say say for example um they were going to sell the moat bridge that i drive over would you be happy for that to be transported to said country for you to to look at and see the real thing you go first caitlin i'm just trying to think logistically how would you move a bridge that big <laughs> that was <laughs> my question too i wanted to see how you answered that <laughs> <laughs> they, they literally, they literally did that. London, London Bridge, Bridge, one yeah. of London what? Bridges, is now in America. It's in the states, yeah. Yeah, yeah. really. Bridge is in America, yeah. It's not in Oklahoma. That doesn't <laughs> sound real. That doesn't sound <laughs> real. The story goes they thought they were buying Tower Bridge. No, that's a myth. Um, 
Perhaps and they, they weren't. They bought London Bridge. But yeah, one of the London bridges. I believe it's connecting an island in a lake to the mainland. No, right, I'm going to find a picture of it. London Bridge. It's right, in keep one of the states, um, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, like, it depends what the object is and it depends on the significance for me. Like, when I went to, as um, as Joe was saying before, the Ashmolean Museum and I saw that Alfred jewel, I'm a big, like, big fan of Alfred the Great. When I saw that, that was pretty incredible. And that was only, like, this big, right? Same as the Magna Carta and everything like that. So I guess it depends what it is. I think there's something that comes across is when you look at um, some of these, like some of these newer countries such as Australia and the US, is that in our museums, we've got things where they're people's ancestors, things where, you know, generations, generations, generations ago. Uh, however, like, you know, when it comes to newer history, can you, I think it's probably more yeah, that was my grandfather's spear. Can I have that back? Mm. You know, I think that there's a you've got to you've got to judge it by the, that as well. Mm. Um, you know, I've I've been to Nine Eleven Museum as well, and I think that's one of the the best museums I've ever been to. Absolutely harrowing. I couldn't I couldn't be in there for longer an hour. Mm. Uh, but I think they dealt with things like that really well. Is that they've spoken to family members. To say, is it okay if this is here? Um, and things have been kept in pressurized containers to to prevent them disintegrating, to prevent any more grief. But they've also got the, these two rooms where they've got two massive projectors. And on these projectors, they put a picture of someone who was there and then a family member speaking about them. Um, so, you know, you, you're learning mm. from the people who are affected as opposed to, you know, the British Museum, where you can't speak to those people who are affected anymore. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, I think we have to tackle that removal from history in some of these museums, with the artefacts as well, just to say, yes, this is their ancestors thing, but we need to look at the reasons why, you know, why it should go back and educate people if it needs to go back, why it needs to. I think some museums get it really right and others not so much. So. Um, like like you were talking about the nine eleven museum, like um, that was that's uh, that's going to be a really important part of history further down the line. So the, what they've done is they've recorded that now by the people mm. that are there. So later on, generations later on, actually that's first hand information that you're getting, rather than a scholar that's written something who's copied something who's copied something who's copied something, etc. And we kind of get a half truth. Um, by the victors, so you've you've got real information there. Um, they did it again with the death camps in um, uh, Germany and Poland. Like late when the technology was available, they actually spoke to people that were there, and we've got recorded footage of that. So we're quite lucky in a way that we have that technology that we can record these things. Um, just, I mean, to to lighten the mood slightly. Um, this is how old I'm getting, right? So I was walking around a museum in Glasgow, so it's a museum of transport, right? And I turn around and I see the first car that I ever owned in a museum. That's how old I've become. I just turned around, I was like, I had that car. This is, it. This is downhill from now. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, I was horrified, to be honest. 
I went to uh, a museum up in, um, I think it was in Inverness in Scotland, mm. and it was um, in celebration of, you know, Culloden, like the last um, Jacobite Rebellion kind of thing. And it had this room, it was just a blank room, and there was projections on all four walls as if you were kind of in the middle of the battlefield. So you'd see one side running and you'd see another side. It was actually really cool and because like it was so powerful because of the, the lights and the sounds. It really gave a really good representation of what it would have been and, like. And the setting as well. So I've seen yeah. that happen in, um, I think in a couple of castles. So Norwich Castle, they do it and they, they project oh, okay. um, uh, almost like figures onto the wall. So you're walking around and there's, the, there's, there's like two characters. That, I mean, they're obviously actors. Um, mm. But they've been recorded, and they're having full-on conversation in like medieval dress, and there's people running in like and an, an events and stuff. So that that to me is a really good way of mixing technology mm. with the actual historical place. Um, I'm going to ask everybody one by one, um, like what was their what's their first kind of memory of uh, a museum. Or, or what museum they remember first and what kind of like sparked their interest in history. It can be a historical place as well. It doesn't specifically have to be a museum. So, um, Chris, I'm going to jump to you. Uh, yeah, I've got kind of two different answers. So they're both museums, it's the same answer. But the first, the first museum I remember going to is the uh, Railway Museum in York. Um, I was a massive train nerd as a kid. Thomas the Tank Engine for you, um, and I absolutely love trains, so it's, it kind of became like a yearly pilgrimage for me and my family to go to the Railway Museum in York. York is the best city in the world, if anybody's ever not been to it, go to it. Town, sorry. York's great. Um, oh, look at Joe, York, Joe's shaking his head as a Lancastrian, he's shaking his well, head. Well, you know you've got a Yorkist with me, so... <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, that's the first real tangible memory I've got from museums but in terms of history specifically it's the museum that I was at most recently which is the Royal Armouries in Leeds uh, another great city um, I absolutely adore the Royal Armouries and again if people haven't been to the Royal Armouries in Leeds it's it's brilliant if you're into military history um, so do you want to just explain yeah what it what it is yeah of course yeah so it's a one of the best things about Britain and museums is it's free. Um, you can donate, which I do highly recommend you do keep these things free, ironically. Um, but uh, yeah, it's basically full of swords and guns. Um, that's obviously a summary of, of what it's in, but it's, it's built over four floors. Um, it goes all the way from, it's got some uh, ancient Greek and ancient Roman arms and armor. It goes right through the Middle Ages. Uh, into the modern day, it's got stuff on like hunting weapons, uh, the colonial period. It's got a wonderful um, demonstration uh, kind of room in the um, middle of it, which teaches you how to sword fight, which is quite cool. Um, there's also a, uh, a set of lists for jousting outside, which is the coolest thing you can do probably ever. Um, but yeah, I, I try and go, I've been twice in the last year, with COVID it's been pretty difficult, but I try and go as regularly as possible because it's, it's kind of like, not to sound really dramatic, but it's kind of like going home for me. Mm. It's the first really, really important place to me. It's where I re genuinely started to love history. Um, you know, my so topic of choice is, is medieval England and it has one of the best showings of, of the medieval period with the coolest coffee table in the world which is just a glass table with the Battle of Agincourt in it 
and that it's cool. literally what that dreams cool. are made out of. I absolutely right. love the Royal Armouries. Yeah, I was going to ask because obviously you're. Um, so they they have artifacts from the medieval period in the in the museum. Yeah, yeah, it's stunning. They've got some. The, one probably the coolest thing they've got in there is a, a sword that was used during the Crusades. Um, it's absolutely stunning. It's got a, you can just see a tiny little cross in the hill, and I'm like, what? You know what carnage was caused by yeah, that sword? Yeah, the stories what? that could tell. Yeah, like. I think it was from the 13th century, so it was probably the 8th or 9th Crusade it was part of, but I might have been carried by Edward I or, you know, one of his pals and, you know, while he was gallivanting off and, you know, having poison sucked out of him by his, by his new wife. It's just unbelievable, the stuff they have there. Um, yeah, I could spend forever in that museum. Amazing. I actually lived in Leeds for three years and I never went. How poor is that? I'll take you sometime. Yes, yes, I'm going to come up to Yorkshire. I'm gradually yeah. uh, working my way round to see everyone and meet everyone properly. So, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come to Oklahoma out. one day as well. I'll, um, I'll, so I'll, just come some... to, I'll just come to the UK. Like, everything y'all are talking easier. about sounds yeah. amazing. Like, we can all just meet up in one place <laughs> over there somewhere. I want to go to Oklahoma and I don't. <laughs> okay, you come to Oklahoma, that's fine. I'll take you dancing. I'll yeah. teach you how to dance. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um, Joe, what about you, museum-wise? Well, as as you know, all um, our well, I'm from Southport, and our town is ridiculously young for for English standards. We're a Victorian town that that sprang up properly in the 1800s, really. Um, but the first place I was ever taken that really um, sparked an idea that there was there was all this stuff that had come before me. My, my granddad took me to Liverpool and to, I think it's St George's Hall where the mosaic is and they'd mm. uncovered it because they don't have it uncovered all the time and I was ridiculously young for this this wasn't an outing for a five year old really <laughs> I didn't have the attention span but there was something about seeing something and being told that is thousands of years old that has been there for thousands of years and it'll, you know it represents a culture that's long since died it, it really did stay with me Mm. And I think when it came time to choose where you go with your academic, you know, your academic career, going down the history route, it was remembering things like that where you just have that sense of awe when you see mm. something. And the free museums in Liverpool, because there's like a little cluster of them, were really that, that place for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. What about you, Elliot? Um, I think for me, because Australia's a bit newer, I saw the Dinosaur Museum when I was a kid and I was like, that's cool and stuff. But for history, the two that kind of stand out for me, the um, when I was in Mexico City, I went to the Museum of the Aztecs and it's just it was just incredible. It's huge. They don't just do Aztec culture. They do all the Olmecs and everything in between them. I can't even remember how many there were. But there was just this one like sun disc that was probably as big as this wall behind me. And the description was pretty much like, oh yeah, some Spaniard liked the look of this one, so he rolled it away so it didn't get smashed up with the rest of them. And then 300 years later, they found it behind a door. And it's like as big as the wall behind me. So it was crazy. And then um, my second one, I went to, when I was in Jaipur in India, there was the weapons museum and they had these really bizarre weapons because obviously people used elephants a lot in warfare and they had this like percussion spear so it was a spear with a like a a um you know an amp, a bullet like cap being capable of fired out of it so you'd spear the elephant in the leg and then shoot the poor bastard with this thing once the spear's in you know so i was like oh god so just uh, those would be my two i reckon yeah. 
There's a what? giant war elephant in the Royal Armouries as well. Just is there really? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a really real cool. one still alive. Yeah, yeah, it's really just walks about <laughs> and just it works. You've got to keep out of his way though, right? Yeah, the the, the <laughs> elephant of Leeds. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's really cool. The the giant war elephant though, it's worth worth seeing. I'll check that out actually. Yeah. I need to pin that museum. Um, it's they really have the retired. Yeah. We had the retired circus elephant down in Hugo, Oklahoma. It's <laughs> not bad. That's, That's amazing. I love it. Um, what about you, Caitlin? It doesn't have to be a museum. It could be anything historic that kind of got you into history. I was actually very fortunate that my dad took us to lots of museums growing up. But I think probably one of the first ones that I really remember is we went to the Maybe Gare Museum down in Shawnee, which is right outside the city. It's like on the east side of the city. Oklahoma City, but um, they had the Etruscan uh, exhibit. It was traveling. I think it probably came from somewhere in the UK. Like I think probably the British Museum probably loaned it out or something. But it was just one of those things where we got to walk through, and it had like the audio tour is what I really remember. And the lady was like, "I'll give you and your sister both your own set of headphones, and like that way y'all don't have to share." Which I just thought was great. <laughs> but um, just being able to walk around and like hear someone like telling me like the history is like, man, I want to I want to tell somebody these stories one day. And that's kind of how I really got into history is like I want to tell the stories that I was told. So, yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Um, do you have a lot of um, sort of exhibitions like travel into the U.S.? In Oklahoma or just like in general? Just sort of where you are. I think it really just kind of de like depends like the cowboy museum gets a lot of exi exhibitions and then like the smaller museums will get some sometimes but it's really just kind of hit and miss yeah oh, that's interesting what about you jackson uh so yeah I've, I've not done too many museums to be honest but uh, i remember for me the sticks out is uh going to the town of london i can't i can't remember going around the town of london i was very young uh, but i remember getting my first horrible histories book um, from the Tower of London, a horrible histories books for those who don't know, uh, were written by Terry Deer, he's a fantastic historian, but they just literally talk about the most gruesome details in whichever history, and there's always different books from. Uh, so I picked up an England one, and it's my first ever horrible his horrible histories, and I just read it and I kept reading it and I kept getting loads of other ones, um, which kind of developed my interest in history, and then because. Peterborough is quite a new city we have our own we do have our own museum it is a fantastic museum and we have a fantastic beautiful cathedral but it kind of going it going to it so often with school kind of created this disdain for my my local history kind of stuff so I started focusing on political big picture history uh, because I would just seen it so much but yeah, that's how I kind of got into mine. So Catherine of Aragon is or was buried in Peterborough Cathedral. And don't Peterboreans know about it? We have a we have a, <laughs> we have a Catherine of Aragon festival every single year. Is she and still buried there now? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and we I think we had Mary Queen of Scots for a, a small. Oh, and then she got moved, didn't she? Yeah. To, yeah. So yeah, Westminster. I think she got moved to Westminster because yeah. they recognised her yeah. as a legitimate queen. Okay. Um, but I yeah, think James a, played a role as well. Yeah, there's a plaque of where she was laid to rest originally. They had um, Cromwell like... in Westminster as well. He was there for about two years before they dug him up. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get a long rest. Yeah, Sounds like a trip then... out to um, to your lot, Jackson. To yeah, the, uh, the Catherine, of, Catherine of Aragon festival. Honest, honestly, like, sounds cool. The cathedral 
because it's absolutely amazing. If you can find a picture of it, look it at it. It's stunning, yeah. It, it makes, because I've like, grown up with it, whenever I look at any of the cathedrals, I'm like, eh, you know. It's, <laughs> Peterborough. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly, and you don't say that You don't that get often. to say that very often, do you? Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You're not there looking at the Taj Mahal going, not quite yeah. Peterborough. <laughs> do you know, I've been to, uh, you know the house that Downton Abbey was filmed in, it, Highclere Castle? So it looks all fancy on telly, right? And I got there, and I was a bit like, ah, oh, <laughs> is that it? It looks a lot small. Well, it is a lot smaller than it looks on telly. And the whole thing is basically falling apart. Mm. And I was just like, oh, they've just, uh, they've just put camera tricks on there. Like, it's not as shiny as they make out. And it's not guy, quite Peterborough. The guy it's who designed that <laughs> also designed the York Asylum. So... Mm, there you go. Yeah. Actually, an interesting link. So the Carter family that um, uh, lived at Highclere Castle discovered Tutankhamun's uh, grave. Oh, is it so Howard, Howard Carter? Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think Did interestingly. He, he, oh, sorry, you guys. No, I was going to say he got all the curses and stuff, didn't he? Yeah. As well. Yeah. Well done, it, Howard. Maybe one thing you weren't supposed to do down, was open yeah. it. He yeah. did. Yeah. Probably is. Yeah. He did. But interestingly, yeah. Egypt. <laughs> loan out to Tutankhamun, don't they? Yeah. Uh, I think he, he came to London. I know they um, they do these, well, whenever they move a mummy in Egypt, they do a proper, they do a proper, uh, what's it, ceremony for it, where they lie they in the recently, streets. recently, didn't I they? I saw that, yeah. Saw. All coming home. Olympics opening ceremony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that's, that's another important thing as well about the artefacts in the museum, that if you do need to move them, if you do need to keep them, treat them with the same ceremonial respect mm. that they would have had in their host country because you know can we can't impose I'm, our values i really I'm, want to see this ceremony now i can just see it really funny it, it, it it's funny? pretty good actually but uh, just on that note as well i don't know if you've seen like when they moved like ramses or something i'm not even kidding this sounds like a joke they got a passport made for him and it says yeah, occupation king and then it says deceased and the guy's a mummy it's like no one's thinking this guy's alive you know <laughs> <laughs> it had an actual picture of him as well, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I was just like, what? It's great saying that now, but in Victorian times, we were taking so many mummies out of Egypt, people were literally burning them. Mm. Yeah, they were making paint out of them and stuff, yeah. weren't they, as well? Yeah. Like yeah. Medicine as well, I think. Medicine yeah, I common... remember hearing that. Those crazy Victorians. I just love watching Caitlin through this as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll have one. <laughs> Welcome to our mad culture, Kaylee. <laughs> Kaylee might microwave water, but she's never snorted a mummy. <laughs> you haven't lived. <laughs> oh, that's mad. Um, hey, if so you have, I was wrong, but yeah. Microwaving a mummy, can you imagine? That's mad. Not easily. They no. actually have mummies down at that Maybe Gear Museum I was talking about. Oh, so. there you go. Yeah. There you go. So they've travelled awesome. worldwide. These you can have a snort of that one then, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> Just go That's out. Yeah. Have back. a good sniff. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. That's mental. So for, for me, it was um, uh, Carlisle Castle. So my dad's family were up in Carlisle, which is on the border between Scotland and England. Um, and Carlisle uh, was fought... Uh, between for ages so sometimes it was in Scotland sometimes it was in England it went on and on and on so it's got the two cultures kind of like fused together and I yeah I just remember like being just so excited about this castle and there was another um, uh, so a lot of the buildings like where I'm from are Victorian um, 
buildings and older. So we were brought up in like a 1940s house, um, but a lot of my friends had um, like old fireplaces in their bedroom. And I mean, I was I was weird from day one. So like, it's um, all, 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 all this guy called Robert had a, a Victorian fireplace in his uh, house, and I was like, oh my god, it's so exciting! Like I love it. And they were like, yeah, we just want to go play football. And I was like, yeah, but the cast iron and the red brick, look at how it's fused together. And they were like, Ollie, you're effing mental. And um, yeah, so yeah, they were all playing like football, and there was me like staring at this fireplace, getting like really excited. Um, and I still love a red brick building. Yes, red for brick you. forever. Yeah, absolutely. I knew you'd be a fan of the red brick, Joe. Yeah. Take nah. home. You don't have a lot dry, of it in dry Lancaster, stone walls. <laughs> love a good dry stone wall. And uh, Car- so Carlisle for- Castle is the most besieged castle in the country. Mm. Is it really? Mm. Yeah. And it's also, wow. you know you know the, the Scottish song, you take the high road and I'll take the low road? Yeah. Uh, it was about prisoners in Carlisle Castle and all of their families were allowed to go home but they were being hung so the, the low road is um, I'll, I'll die and my soul will get to Scotland before you do so they let them say goodbye to the families like the wives and kids and said right you wave them off they can go home but yeah there's a noose with your That's name not the home that. you want to go to wow yeah. <laughs> that's mad I just like there's, there's a point that I, I think Caitlin, you looked a bit confused on. So there's a Lancaster-Yorkist rivalry in the country. So um, Joe is from Lancaster and um, Chris is from York. This is why they keep having the red brick stone banter between them. Did this, did this go back to the War of the Roses, by the yeah. way? Yeah. yeah. Do you know, that, that's that one war. I've read like three books on it. I put the book down, like, yeah, still don't get it. <laughs> Nobody gets it. it. <laughs> Just like inherited claims. When the chips are down, it's it's everyone versus the Southerners. That's you know. <laughs> yeah, that, I can get I can get behind that. I can get behind that. Sorry. I don't know yeah. if, it's, Sorry, if it's like you, but with football, it's like I'll support the Lancashire team, and then I'll support the Northern team. Right. I mean, you'll you'll never guess who I support. Not to talk about football. I'm, I'm assuming Leeds. I'm a Man United fan. But you don't live in Manchester. No. No, but I'm the first member of my family born outside of. Uh, Lancashire, so I'm a I'm a traitor to my own family. So, but yeah, I'm a okay. I'm a so fan. this <laughs> is the the t- so I promised everyone that they could have a five minute conversation about sport and history of sport. So I'm going to time you. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, this is you you talk about. Um, do you want to start with a football museum? Has anyone been there in Manchester? Yes. Uh, no, I've been to it when it was in Preston North End's ground. Uh, Deepdale, um, and I'm I'm actually surprised that it's not more controversial as to where the location is because it moved to Manchester, but I would have assumed that um, Sheffield, considering you had the first professional football Sheffield team, FC, yeah, would have um, tried to claim it and say, well, if you're doing the history of football, here it is. I'm surprised that it's not down in London where the FA formed. You know, it, yeah. it's one of those things. It seems weird that it's ended up in Manchester, which. You know, in the history of football, came quite late to the party. Mm. Yeah, I, I was, I was literally talking to my friend about about this. He's Sheffield born and bred, Sheffield United fan all his life, and he's he's literally just done a photo shoot for Sheffield FC's new kit launch. Completely coincidentally, mm. um, and he was saying how strange it is that the team that have been around since the late nineteenth century, the oldest team in football globally, 
and it's not the city that houses the museum. It is a decent museum, though. Yeah. Uh, and Man United are the greatest team of all time, so... Yeah. I'll, I'll let it slide. Jackson, don't start. Yeah. I know you well, support. I've just done, <laughs> I've just done um, an essay comparing the you know Eastern European, uh, British and Spanish football and the cult, uh, political links to it uh, and the effect on tactics. Um, and you can kind of see the whole like tensions in the area. I thought it was so fascinating the way they all played differently because the communist players were like, all right, we'll work together. (laughs) (laughs) So for those joining us, that was Elliot just ruining the whole show. um... (laughs) Sorry about that. No worries. Jackson, continue. That's that's eaten into your time, by the way. Go. Well, he had communist football, which was completely different from Spanish... (laughs) Spanish football or British football, so it's it's all in. Oh, I I just love it. I just love football, and I got Football Manager on my laptop just to add to it. <laughs> I, d- I didn't pick up who you supported. I'm an Arsenal fan, mate. Arsenal. With that accent, of course you are. Yeah, <laughs> I have sense. watched them. I have watched them though. <laughs> cool. So what about I, you, Joe? I don't think we actually established who you support. Uh, Blackburn Rovers. I respect that. I've got a lot of time for that. Fair. Why are they called Blackburn Rovers? Do they all drive Rovers? They're from Blackburn, mate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but what's the Rover <laughs> bit? They rove around. Yeah, we would play <laughs> other teams. We would go and play other teams. You know, like Bolton Wanderers. Yeah. Or are you making I've been this to up? Bolton Wanderers Stadium quite a bit. <laughs> it's one of those. The big I Reebok. I can't cope. I went when right. it was the Reebok, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an actual name, Bolton Wanderers. So are y'all actually being serious right now, or like are y'all yeah. like wanderers? Okay, okay. It's the trotters, if that helps. The thing is, Caitlin, I don't know because I know nothing about football, so I'm just like, are they taking the Mickey out of me? Or I'm happy to go across <laughs> the pond and talk about the other football happily. That is the truth. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I know I know nothing about history. that, but I know that um, you guys follow it. So yeah, talk to me about um, American football then. Weirdly, right doesn't that... represent America because it, all no. the teams are either in California or are on the East Coast. There's very few in the center. And Texas has, what is it? It has the Houston Texans, it has Texas and Dallas it has Cowboys. Dallas, yeah. So it's, it's very much. Kansas, so. Oh, the Chiefs, yeah. Patrick Mahomes. Crime yeah. and Nelly, that guy's good. And Rich. I, I should very imagine rich. so. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of play. Yet yeah, can't beat Tom Brady in his what? He's now 60? I think he's he at least 68, 69 at this point. Yeah, he's eternal, that man. He'll never die. I was, he I did was break my heart, though, when he left the Patriots. That was that was a tough day as a Patriots fan. That was horrible. I was just watching, watching Ollie. At... <laughs> I know Ollie's just going to edit it out. That's all. <laughs> you're of on all four, the current you're quarterbacks on... doing the 40 yard dash, and um, Tom, Tom Brady yeah. came totally bottom. It was a jogging, like, dad running. It's brilliant. It's um, like, I never have to run in my game. Yeah, he, he milks that big time, yeah. I think in terms of, from a history point of view, I think American football and the NFL is such an interesting thing to look into from a history point of view. It's kind of how I got into it, to be honest. Um, I watched a film called The Express, um, which is about a uh, chap, chap called Ernie Davis, who was a big college star at Syracuse in the 50s. Um, He replaced a chap called Jim Brown, who is one of the most well-known athletes in America, one of the greatest athletes of all time. 
um, and it's it really piqued my interest with the NFL. And even though it's a sport that relatively, um, no disrespect, Caitlin, is is brand new to us, um, it's it's full of history and it's such an exciting sport um, from a history point of view. I have it's a question to... for Caitlin. So okay. um, we always get this impression from film and television that. Um, uh, a lot of schools are very um, patriotic towards their football team. Is that really a thing, or is it just exaggerated for television? So, like, high school football or, like, yeah. college football? Yeah, well, both. Okay. Um, we'll just go with college. Like, I would, like, football, like, football in a small town is, like, huge. Like, I grew up in a small town, and, like, Friday night, like, you better get the game. Like, that was just where it was at. Um, like, rivalries, oh, like, even those were books real. About it. They even write books about it. Yeah. Friday Night Lights. It's like college football, like, I bleed orange, like, go Pokes. So. That's really Can interesting, I... because in British schools, um, we could not um, be more... So, so we're not very supportive of each other. So if somebody falls, <laughs> if somebody falls over... We like we like clap and laugh, like we we kind of want people to suffer. Um, so getting behind like a football team or a college team, like no one would really do it because they're just like, oh, go away, or I don't want to do um, sport today because I have to get changed in these grotty nineteen seventies changing rooms that have got tiles falling off of them. And potentially you have a really like awkward teacher that will just stand there and watch you shower. It's very bizarre. I mean, I so don't. Like, yeah. I was gonna say like rivalry wise, like in Oklahoma, like I went to Oklahoma State University, like a cowboy, like go Pokes. But we have another school in the state called the University of Oklahoma, like OU, and they're the Sooners. So there's a game. It's Bedlam is what it's called. Bedlam defined is like. Like uproar crazy like a scene of like confusion and chaos so like anytime like the schools come together like bedlam like i got to go sit through bedlam at my college twice and it was the craziest like buzziest atmosphere i have ever been in like the first time i went we almost came back and won but we didn't which was like crushing <laughs> but um like bedlam like for real like so does college it, football is just like for real it's it's the real thing so does it get aggressive at often, all like do people oh yeah get... like fights like really throw okay. punches oh yeah. yeah it gets it gets intense can i can i ask about the you know obviously it's quite topical but the like the actual reaction to the names like washington redskins kansas city chiefs um and colin kaepernick you know probably feeds into what we've been talking about as well so how like what's what's that like as an American, because we can only look as an outsider. I think it's just, like, there are polarized opinions. Like, I actually touched on this at the end of my thesis, honestly, like, my master's thesis, like, how the the name should be changed. I'm of the opinion, opinion that the name should be changed. I don't think that you should be making mascots of indigenous peoples, but there are other people who think that that is okay, but I don't think it is. So, I guess, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. It is interesting. See, that piqued my interest. So you, you got a bit of interest from me from sport. Well done, <laughs> guys. Although I used to play ice hockey before they knocked all the ice rings down. Little fact for you there. 
still one in Bradford, mate, if you ever fancy a skate. I used to go when I went to Leeds, because it's next to the um, that photograph museum. Or yeah, it's the... Um, oh, what's it called? That's another one I used to go to all the, the time fil- It's like film and TV. Film and TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's changed, um, yeah. So I used to go to that's that. That's cracking, that is, as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, uh, just very quickly before we, before we move back onto what we're here for, I find it <laughs> fascinating that, you know, like, let's say... Um, I don't know, Michigan State against Michigan is like a ridiculous game in college. Like that stadium holds 100,000 people, but it will never be as violent as Watford at Crystal Palace. Just it, the difference in in scale versus what it, like, it, it just blows my mind that like, I don't know, if you're Stockport, let's say, and you're going to Wickham, that's like, you, we're going to war. Like that's yeah, big. huge differences yeah. in band culture. Yeah. So and I think you, it's strange that it doesn't translate. Because in sport, obviously, a lot of teams... I'm, I, I lived in Scotland for a long time, so let's take Glasgow, for example. So you've got, um, you've got Rangers and Celtic. So, but there was a, there was a re- religious alliance there as well. So uh, Celtic was very much an Irish, uh, Scottish, Catholic... Catholic yeah. Um, and then you had Rangers, which was um, Protestant, pro-union, all that kind of stuff. So, is it is it the same in America, are there, or, or Australia? Are there alliances with you support this team because you are of this religion or you are of this um, uh, culture? Elliot, you're looking me. At me. Um, yes. Look, <laughs> I, I think truth truth be told. Um, Disclaimer here: I'm not really big into to AFL. Um, my family's pretty big into it, but it's such a new country. There hasn't been those time for those like roots to develop where it's tied to different things. It's all just kind of a, a region where the team sprung up, and that's where it's got its most supporters, mm-hmm. generally. Yeah. What about you, Caitlin? I agree. Just regionally, kind of where where things are at. Mm-hmm. Then you have like the diehard fans that are. Yeah. I mean, even, even for example, so we saw it on the news recently um, in uh, Scotland. So there was a big uh, Rangers game, and I believe Rangers won something. I don't know what they won. Undefeated um, season. But that's the it. League. So, so yeah. they won, which they is won quite rare ball. because they're, not, they're the underdog. So Rangers are very pro the United Kingdom and very... So if you're pro United Kingdom, that also puts you in alliance with pro Israel. It's very complicated. So this 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 celebration of them winning a football match then turned into a pro union march, which then turned into a pro Israel march, and it was like it's just so intertwined. It's just insane. Yeah, I don't think you get that like deep entwining of sport in very many other countries, really, and, and to the level that it is as well. Because you know, if you're like you know Millwall or so on, you are you have a, a joint identity, that tribalism that comes to it, which, like like you two, uh, like you two said, Elliot and Caitlin, that you don't that hasn't developed elsewhere. Um, you know, in my podcast with Andrew Smith, he speaks about a similar thing going on in France, where it's the wine growers uh, and left wing uh, like kind of tribalism together that made these rugby clubs, as opposed to North, which was you know that intellectual se- section where it was you know. You know that difference between piano players and piano movers. Do you think? Do you think in time that will happen in newer countries? 
like the alliance will then turn into I don't know a political movement or um, I think no I think we and this is probably a very general sweeping statement but I think we're kind of past it in a sense that we, us six people can sit here now in a virtual room we probably don't align politically we probably don't align on maybe religious views etc whereas maybe a hundred years ago this wouldn't have been a group of people that would have communicated whereas now is it really that deep um not to not to kind of like reduce those those things to kind of smaller things because to a lot of people they're still very important but i think i think region is probably the thing that would keep will keep being the driving factor. Um, and that's across the pond and, and across the, or the pond, I guess, to Australia. <laughs> um, that big old pond. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it, it, the environment that we currently have will, will create that level of sectarian, um, the, the world's a lot smaller, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, whereas before you probably wouldn't have necessarily left, left the city or the village or the town that you were from much, um, especially if you had no money and you were working on the land, etc. You'd kind of be very like, um, uh, this is what I've been taught, this is how I've been brought up, this is my religion, this is my culture, like, go away. <laughs> Anyone that thinks otherwise, um, hence loads of different tribes in Scotland uh, and Wales, um, who used to actually fight each other quite a lot. We, the, the English do get a... Um, Oh, it was the English versus the Scots, but the Scots were fighting themselves constantly <laughs> as well. Um, as were the, the neighbouring towns in England uh, and Wales. So, um, yeah, as the world's got smaller, I guess um, you can actually have these sensible conversations with people who, like you said, don't politically align with you uh, or don't have the same religion as you, and actually it's okay to be friends. If, if you want to, the the other problem with the algorithms that a lot of these sites do is you can end up just in an echo chamber mm. and actually you can very easily go from being curious about a subject to being indoctrinated by a subject because as far as you're concerned, YouTube is just feeding you videos about the same thing with people with the same opinion and your Twitter mm. feed is filled with people who are going to reflect back those views. So... I, it's a blessing and a curse in terms of the technology. You can see the rest of the world and you can explore different cultures, but you can also end up in a very, very tiny box, but with loads and loads of very negative propaganda coming your way quite quickly. That's, um, is that a plane? <laughs> yeah. I live, uh, not, there's a, an Air Force base not too far from here, so uh, we fly over and do touch and goes and fly over all the time. Yeah. I believe your president is actually in the UK at the moment. He's in Cornwall, yeah. He's in Cornwall. In Cornwall yeah. Having yeah, very awkward conversations with Boris Johnson if the news coverage was anything to go by. <laughs> uh, the, cl the clown that is Johnson. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, the no, first thing. It's like in our country, we voted you out. It's, um, <laughs> it's interesting that you say that about uh, things being reflected back to you because, uh, like, my political alliance, so, so when I. Uh, uh, when there's a, a vote coming up, so every all, all the content that I'm getting is very similar to my views, and then the outcome of actual elections are very different. And I'm like, well, why? Because people are clearly all thinking mm. the same thing, but they're not. It's just thrown back at me. Mm. 
what I believe, like keywords and buzzwords, etc. So, Brexit yeah. was a great example of that for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's like the same with like U.S. elections as well. Obviously, the whole Cambridge Analytica drama. Uh, um, yeah. It was. I remember going to work the morning of the when they announced the Brexit vote. And me and my friends all at work being like, how has this happened? Like, you voted Remain, right? You Like, everybody I knew and everybody I associated with, for the most part, um, voted the same way I did. And it was very strange to be like, well, what do you mean? Like, the entire world was with us. When, you know, like you've just said, you know, Joe and Ollie, like, it's not always a good thing. And to make it back about museums, you'll love this, Ollie. I think that's what a good thing that, <laughs> that these these kind of international museums that we should probably rebrand them do a good job of is and we definitely spoke about it at the start of this episode it it allows you to see and interact with things from literally different worlds Mm. that if you literally just looked in your little box like if I just you know only looked at Sheffield which is where I live currently I'd have a museum about Victorian industry and emergency service vehicles um, but I can go to. You need you to know, expand on that. Why emergency? Oh, that's that's it. I don't know why, but that's we have very the specific and niche. Yeah. The national, yeah, the nat- the National Emergency Service Vehicle Museum is two minutes down that way. Oh, was uh, a museum. I, I thought you were like famous for building them. Was that right? Okay, got no, you. no, famous for steel. And that's about it. Yeah, um, steel. Yeah, quite useful. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cracking for uh, building stuff, bombs and bridges and other such which um but yeah i think museums like the british museum specifically i know we're talking a lot about the british museum it gives us an opportunity to see things that we truly would never be able to see unless you specifically go to i don't know luxor or somewhere to go and see um the pharaohs or you know you go to india to see the taj mahal obviously i know the taj mahal is not in the british museum it would be very strange (laughs) it's a massive building but if you want to and if you go in with the right you know, frame of mind, which I think was six people and most of the people that will be listening to this episode will go with the right intentions to look at this as history that is important for us to know, to understand and to preserve. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think building way. on building on that as well, like we are living in a globalised world and a globalised economy. Um, you know, having having things about the like various different Chinese uh, dynasties in, in British museums uh, American museums and the Indian dynasties and so on, you know that that could influence one child to become a leading sinologist when they're when they're older. You know, you don't have to be British to be a British historian. I mean, I'm 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 British. I'm English. I've lived in England most of my life, and and yet I'm still specialising in totalitarianism, uh, Stalinist Russia, Maoist China. Uh, Nazi, Nazi Germany and North Korea and I have only ever been to one of those countries so you know this internationalization of information inf- uh, and history and and artifacts as well will lead to a better informed popul- global population because people have a greater access to it um, you know sorry I just dropped just, water for yeah <laughs> Yeah, nice. like like Good like, job uh, recording, eh? <laughs> like like Chris said, like if I just stuck to Peterborough, I would know about <laughs> Catherine of Aragon, Mary Queen of Scots, and the surgeries that happened 
in the Peterborough Museum and that is it. And Caitlin would only know about cowboys. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's for the good that we have internationalised museums. That was a really nice monologue there until Chris it ruined it by talking. <laughs> I'm very sorry. It was unintentional. I'm now very wet. Chris, Chris the dribbler. Two sets, Chris dribbling. Yep. Jackson, can you talk about the surgeries? Like, I don't know anything about that. Like, yeah. so just like briefly. Peterborough, yeah, Peterborough Museum. It's 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 a great museum. It does well with the small amount of funding it has. Uh, it has art galleries on the downstairs. It has another room where we or children go and learn how like learn about historical things. Like it's a workshop room, and then up the stairs you go into the actual history history part. So you have uh, you know, ancient history. So we have dinosaur bones. Uh, like aqua animal stuff bones crocodile bones stuff like that stuff that are actually in Peterborough and then you actually have rooms which teach about the history of the building uh, and it used to be an old hospital so you can still see and it's 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 pretty disgusting but pretty cool you can st- you can see like a hundred year old blood stains on the tiles on the floor uh, and they they kept all the original hospital like rooms and all of the stuff on there. I have, it's been a long time since I've gone, but it's a very cool museum. It's very small, but uh, it's all we've got. Uh, have you been sponsored by them? No. <laughs> no. So I, Jack- Peterborough don't have enough money. <laughs> so, so Jackson's been on the BBC, which is quite a big deal. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm still going to uh, clip that thing where you say you love Hitler in the last episode. <laughs> like I, like I, I messed up. I was worse than a lecture. I was worse than a lecture. I literally sat there and went, "Oh, my count's a fantastic book," and then ca- like add a slight pause and then carried on my sentence. <laughs> it is a great book to learn from. <laughs> it just didn't. To, I just sound like a neo Nazi. Jacob. Jacob's a so. new. I have a friend called Jacob who has pretty much the same accent as Jackson. And we've already discussed the fact that he's an Arsenal fan originally from Nottingham. So there's parallels. And I played Call of Duty with him earlier on that oh, screen. So he's, he's in here all the time. Well, Jackson or Jacob? Uh, both. both in there. No, I meant, <laughs> no, I meant who here. did you play Call of Duty with or whatever you played? Oh, Jacob. Yeah, not right. Jackson. Okay. I'm pretty shocking. I was saying. Well, there you go. There I you play go. Mario. That's my level. <laughs> yeah, so when I was up at Joe's, so he brought um, his children. At, well, I say he brought his children. It was definitely for him. Um, what was it? Like a Nintendo Switch? A Nintendo Switch, yeah. And um, his, uh, his little girl came home from school and he was like, oh, look what I've got you, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, she wants to watch Daddy play. And like she just <laughs> <laughs> so Joe played it while she just watched him. She's I was getting like, pretty good at Mario Kart. To be you've got a good her. deal there. <laughs> yeah, I was. I mean, she was she was she was up for it, wasn't she? She wasn't mm. she wasn't too bothered by it. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was just funny how you were like, look what Daddy's bought you. Get out of the way for Daddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This game's rated eighteen. You need to leave. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that made me laugh. That did make me chuckle. Um, so, to sum up, this is going to be a yes or no answer Ooh. for everyone. So, no elaboration. You always anything. say yes or no, and no one ever says yes or no. <sighs> well, maybe. <there's... 
<laughs> so I like so, that option. Yes, yeah. okay. It depends. That's the best one. So You're not going to get a yes, no answer here, just no, so you it's, know. No, it's fine. <laughs> you, you can elaborate. It's fine. So, do we think, or do you think personally, that items should be returned if a host country requests them and uh, is uh, able to preserve them and look after them for historical purposes Chris um, I'm going to ignore your request and I will elaborate <laughs> um, my answer is yes because I would much prefer history to be a international community that is shared globally I think one thing that I'm very very hopeful that will happen is the um yeah, I'll call it the return of the Bayo Tapestry um, to hopefully to, I'm assuming, the British Museum. Um, it's obviously been in France for 950 years, where it was probably not made. It was probably made in Canterbury. Um, but I would love to see more things travel. I would love the Rosetta Stone to travel through Europe and to go to all these places where it's affected language and culture. I'd love the Bear Tapestry to come to England and I'll probably tear up when I see it because it's, you know, like we've alluded to a thousand times, it's a thousand years of my and our shared history. Um, but also I don't resent the French government for having it. I would have resented the French government if during the French Revolution they did use it to cover ammunition crates, which they were going to do. Um, but yeah, so I, I think they should, things should go back, but it shouldn't be static things should move as long as it's safe and the correct thing to do because you know like I'm I'm going by the time this airs it's probably already happened but I'm going down to the British Museum shortly to see the Thomas Beckett um, exhibit um, because Thomas Beckett is an incredibly important person in English uh, church history and is someone that I find truly fascinating and the fact that it's moving only from Canterbury but the fact that it's it's moving it, to me, these things should travel the world and be enjoyed by as many people as possible. So, in short, yes, in long, by a top screen. I like that answer. It wasn't yes or no, but it's a good answer. Um, <laughs> Politician, isn't it? Politician's this is true. answer. This is true. You've got to do that thing with your hand as well, like this. Um, Joe, what are we thinking? Going full politician. I think the question you wanted to ask. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> But talking about politics, um, I, can, I kind of agree with Chris that it should be um, a possibility for things to move around, but I don't believe that that should be in the hands of any sort of governing political um, party for any country. I think there needs to be arbitration from someone like UNESCO, some someone that just because, um, as you see, I mean, I think we talked about the pandas in China before, it's a way of using soft power. And now that so many countries have nukes that it's basically, we can't use military force anymore, that soft power is so important. And the idea that you could say to a country, we'll return this, but in exchange, we want a preferential trade deal. Um, you get the big win of you've got this artifact back, but we get a bit of money. It, it's too open to manipulation through the nuances of the political situation at the time. I think there needs to be someone who... Uh, you know, a truly independent organisation who has that um, view that the actual 
the artifacts themselves are the most important thing and their welfare is the most important thing and that every country should agree that actually it's better that these are held for the world and that they can travel and that everyone can Agreed. have the same opportunities that we've had because we're very lucky in Britain that when I say I went to Liverpool and I saw Egyptian artefacts and I could see Roman artefacts and I could see artefacts from all over the world, that's because we were a first world country and uh, you know a country with an empire that were able to take all these things. It's not the same opportunity that someone in other countries would have and they should have that opportunity to see the same artefacts. Good. These are good answers. I'm enjoying these. Um, Caitlin, what about you? Yes, I think they need to be returned, but again, I still think that things could be made more widely available digitally and like to embrace the technology we have. And I'm like, I know Jackson talked about, you know, like screen fatigue, but I think just having it available to like a wider audience, you could reach a broader um, spectrum of people who wouldn't have like the budget to necessarily travel to Britain and see everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What about you, Elliot? Uh, I think in the event that the nation state that clearly was the one that owned it originally still exists, then yeah, they probably should be returned. But for states that maybe are a bit less, you know, developing nations and stuff like that, as um, as Joe was saying, maybe if we use some sort of UNESCO rating, like I know they use a HDR, which is a Human Development Index, to to classify life expectancy and I think there's other ways of ranking countries so maybe if something passed a, a number or a threshold on that then they could be returned as well yeah. so yes but yeah yeah no absolutely what about you Jackson I've gone through a bit of a journey with it throughout the course of the podcast you know I I, I decided to make my notes on saying no they shouldn't be returned because I was like well Everyone else is going to sit there and say, yes, they should be returned. So I decided... <laughs> all, to... the, all these hippies. Exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then we started talking and I was like, oh, maybe maybe some of them should be returned. And, and then I, I spoke beautifully and then Chris interrupted me with his dribbling. Um, <laughs> sorry, man. Sorry. Um, so forever, forever judged. Dub, dubbed the dribbler. I think it should be a case by case. Um, we like, like Joe said, it's soft power, but we we not only have a responsibility to educate the world on the world's history and the world's culture. We have an edu we have a responsibility to educate our own people first. Um, without we we have to be aware of our nation's past, um, and and sometimes you know not everyone's going to go to a museum, not everyone's going to read a book, but touching at least one two three people through an exhibition and making them aware of the past will improve the way that we we look at our past and look at other countries you know at the moment it's particularly pertinent that we do uh we don't want to watch britain america and so on just descend into this this kind of infighting this bitter infighting so i think it should be a case by case um study and i think that some of these some of these artifacts necessarily cannot be transferred back to their home countries as well yeah i mean i think you all make amazing points like i i i like the idea of it um like an international community of of, of history where actually everyone gets to see it regardless of your wealth and regardless 
of um, your status or, or, or where you live, etc. So, I, I mean, I really like that. I mean, I, I, I again, like Jackson, but the opposite way around. I came in thinking, yes, absolutely, 100% give everything back. But, like, points have been raised, actually, on a case-by-case basis. And like you said, Elliot, with the, if the host nation doesn't exist anymore, then, then where does it go? And, and mm. why... Why would uh, a country that doesn't exist anymore want something that is that is not yeah, it's has not valued to yeah. them? Um, so it's really interesting. And another point that I wanted to to, to put in that that um, I've not mentioned before. So normally, when there is a, a a war or a conflict, what is the first kind of buildings that people go for? It's significant cultural buildings, mm. isn't it? Mm. So the Blitz in London, for example, uh, was uh, so St Paul's was very much um, they wanted that to come down because that was a, a, a symbol of, of, of British power and British wealth um, being sort of the main sort of church in London, um, and it stood, and that was really symbolic that actually that didn't come down. But you go back to the Middle East conflict that's been going on, seems like forever and a day now. Um, cultural sites are always kind of the first things to go. Yeah. And we recognise that importance as well in the Gene- Geneva Convention. I think it's actually illegal to go and rid these countries of culturally important sites uh, through the Geneva Convention because you're losing out on international mm-hmm. history. And it seems like a personal attack as well. I mean, I know um, from, from books that I've read, they've um, like historical buildings, again, in places that were bombed quite heavily during the war. It felt like a personal attack on people's culture um, mm. by, take, by removing those buildings. You've removed a part of them, um, which is really interesting, for me anyway. So, yeah. Um, going back to museums, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent. I, was like, I feel like even pop culture has kind of picked up on that. Like they made the movie Monuments Men uh, several mm. years ago that talked about like the art being stolen. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's incredible how we identify, isn't it, with like specific places. So, so you mentioned mm. the Tower of London earlier. I believe it was Jackson. Um, and to me, that's one of my favourite buildings in the entire world. I've been lucky enough to travel quite a lot, and still, when I see that building, it feels like coming home because I was there as a child a lot. Um, I, although I'm not a Londoner, I'm on the cusp of being on London. It's kind of like a symbolic um, structure that's been there since the Norman Conquest, and it's like. If that was to go, for example, that would actually personally like I I would feel that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though it's got really nothing to do with me. <laughs> I, I, can, I can actually give you an example of this, although it wasn't destroyed in a military conflict. But yeah. I live in Southport on the coast, and my wife lives in Lytham St Anne's on the coast. And as in her childhood, as she drove towards Lytham St Anne's, Blackpool's just down the road, she could see Blackpool Tower, and that was her way of knowing as a child. I'm, I'm nearly home. In Southport, we had something called the gasometer, which was just a massive gas silo that sat on the edge of town. And they took that down when I was about 20. And every time I was driving back home, it, it was jarring that I didn't have that mm, thing that was just so ubiquitous yeah. in my childhood. And it was part of 
Southport. It was part of all the people who lived there knew what it was uh, and used it as a point of reference. And they tore it down to build some houses, that's fine, but it really did jar for a, the longest time mm-hmm. when you were driving expecting to see something it just wasn't there. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting how we get attached culturally to things. Mm. Um, even things that kind of don't really mean a lot to us. Do you know what I mean? Like like it, it, uh, it's a tower or it's a, a chimney or, or, or whatever it is. Mm. It's just it's symbolic of where you grew up. Like, again, for an example, there was a... So I was brought up in the countryside, so there was... Um, uh, we were surrounded by fields and fields and fields, but then uh, all of a sudden a big development was built on these fields. So these these dirt tracks and woods and stuff that we used to use were no longer there, and it's almost like... Have you ever seen the film Stand By Me? Yes. Yeah. So it kind of reminds me of that sort of coming-of-age kind of film, and then it's just gone, like... Yeah, it's just it's just weird how we get like attached to things, isn't it? That actually talking about strange connections we make to things. I'm I'm not a religious person whatsoever, but I feel very attached to um, abbeys and cathedrals that were destroyed during the Reformation. Mm. Anyone that follows me on Instagram will know my dislike of Henry. I was going to say you hate Henry VIII. Don't you? <laughs> I hate Henry VIII nearly as much as that Robin Hood film with Russell Crowe in it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think my one of my friends, he he's his parents' house is on the re, uh, remains of Roach Abbey, um, which is very close to me. It's an absolutely beautiful site, but it's just a couple of stones now, and it's very sad that that was destroyed. And I think what museums do very well, and to me the main purpose of them is protecting history. Um, and I guess this goes back to our original point of whether stuff should go back or not, is if the, the health and safety of the artefacts or the protection of the artefacts would be compromised in any way, then my answer is no. My answer is a resounding no, because I, I was not there in the 1530s when you know, the monasteries were being sacked and all of the you know, wonderful English heritage was being destroyed graves were being robbed you know Alfred the Great's grave was destroyed we don't know where he's but we have no concept of where he was where he is really and to see that happen again potentially in the future or or in our current time it 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 doesn't really it doesn't sit well with me and I I won't accept it in a way Um, no matter where it is in the world history's history's probably the most important non-personal thing to me in the world Um, because it is who we are you know I'm me because of, you know, 50,000 years of human history or however long we've been on this planet. Mm. And to see any of it destroyed would, would break my heart, to yeah. be honest. It would, it would suck mm. to not get too dramatic. I agree. So, sort of, when you were talking about that, um, like, thousands of years of history, you know, sort of going off on again on a slight tangent, you know that we all sort of turning to our parents at some point along our lives, like, we, we pick up their sayings... And we kind of act as they do as we get older. Like, how long has that been going on? Do you think someone in the Tudor times had the same saying as, like, what you say now? It's mad. Hey, we have eight kings called Henry. What do you think? (laughs) We're a sucker for repetition. Since we've been on this podcast, I've realised I've just... I've accidentally grown my dad's moustache. It's very scary. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh dear. That is funny. I um I sometimes look in the mirror and I'm like I look more and more like my dad every day. And then I find myself saying things and I'm just like, oh, I've turned into my mother. God. Well, I, think, I think the thing to remember is for the longest time we didn't have written language and uh, re, re, you know repetition was the way we remembered. The reason that the uh, the the epics that were written like the uh, Iliad were written the way they were was so that the people who were tasked with learning them by rote would have ways of remembering there are lots of repetitive sort of things about the washing with the wine and stuff but that's so that they've got a touch point and they can sort of remember it it was oral history for the longest time and i don't think that's something that in the you know however long we've had proper written i mean the printing press we're talking 300 years really for having you know readily accessible Books. Mm. And then so, a lot of people couldn't read in that yeah, time. You're not, well. you're not going to lose the idea that oral history is the most important kind of history. Mm. And I think it's the reason that history podcasts are quite popular in a way, because hearing someone tell you a story is still something that's a, a universal human experience. Mm. And mm. what what Caitlin was saying about the idea of using... I, I mean, the thing that I got was how, how excited you were about the fact that you've got your own set of headphones to listen to it because I always when I go to a museum I'll shell out the extra to have the audio talk mm. because there's something about being talked through what's going on that is so valuable mm. and there's there's points mm -hmm. of reference that you might potentially miss when you're going around if someone points something out to you then you're like oh yeah right okay I get it now and this is done because of this etc but um, yes we all know that we love history because uh, we're all historians amateur or professional um we we try our best. So, oh, do you know my boss, uh, my new boss, came up to me this morning. He was like, oh, "I listened to your podcast the other day." I was like, "Oh shit!" Because <laughs> like, like, he's like a proper he's like a proper historian, and he was just like, he listened to the Stuarts episodes, and he was just oh, like, "Shit, that means he's listened to me as well." Yeah. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, did you like it? And he was like, oh, yeah, it was, it was very good. He goes, I've got a few pointers for you. We'll have a chat later. And I was like, all oh, right, okay, thanks. Um, I'd get him on. Yeah, 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 yeah why no, not? I might, I might do, I might do. I've gone for a promotion, so if he's listening, please give me the job. Um, <laughs> you've, you've been there a week. How have you gone for a promotion? That's aud audacious. Well, they told me to go for it. The man knows what he wants. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see. I, um, Caitlin, if you don't know, I, I, I work in uh, Henry VIII's old palace now, okay. which is exciting. Um, Chris is also very excited that I work in Henry VIII's palace. Destroying it from the inside. That's the it was actually built yeah. by Edward the Fourth. Fourth. Yeah. He's so. a good. Yeah, he's a good lad. I'm a big fan <laughs> of Edward the Fourth. It, Proud uh, Yorkist king. Yes, and there's um, there's a there's Yorkist roses in the window, which is interesting. Um, the white rose. So. Apparently Henry VIII was a bit of a Yorkist himself. Apparently he took after his mother. Half and half, wasn't he? Half and half. Anyway, so he gets points for that. we've come to the part of the show where I'm going to give you uh, the opportunity to promote the hell out of yourselves and what you do, etc. So um, elaborate as much as you like. Uh, tell people what they can listen to, what they can read, where they can find you. Um, Twitter handles, etc. So if we start with Elliot. It caught me off guard. All right, so uh, <laughs> my name's uh, Elliot Gates. I am a Australian living in London. I run a history podcast where we go through uh, a national hero of every country of the world, including a few villains more than heroes. Um, lately, we've thrown in a few um, 
episodes are specializing on nation states that don't exist either. Uh, you can find it on Instagram at, at Anthology of Heroes. That's at Anthology of Heroes, or one word. Uh, also Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And just a note, it'll sound better than the microphone I'm using now. So, <laughs> heads up. Uh, Jackson? I was on mute, sorry. Uh, yeah, so I'm Jackson from History of Jackson. It's at History of Jackson on Instagram. Because it doesn't fit on Twitter, I'm at History W Jackson. And then uh, you can find all my videos on my YouTube, uh, links to the podcast, which are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all your major podcast platforms. And then I also have a website where you can find all my content, keep up to, t- uh, keep up to date with me and read some of my work. And that is www.historyofjackson.co.uk. Uh, Jackson, can you buy T-shirts yet? No, not yet, bud. No one. I only had like five, ten people who said they wanted one, Jack, so it wasn't it wasn't that, viable. That's five or ten people more than would wear my name on there. I'll chest. wait. To, tell you what. Tell you what. So I'll be number. I'll be number six. I didn't if see you that get, post. If oh, I get to, if I get to a thousand followers. I'll I'll look at trying to get a mass, get them out you there. You heard mass. it here first, guys. Come on. <laughs> so Jackson's whoring himself out. Um, <laughs> That's why I'm on here, isn't it? Because <laughs> right, you like the company, Jackson. That's yeah, I mean. fair enough. <laughs> um, Joe. I'm Joe Heathco. I do a bijou little podcast um, called Consistently Eccentric. We just do a weekly episode on whoever's piqued my interest at that particular time. The only caveat is that they have to have some tangential link to Britain. Uh, you can find us by searching Consistently Eccentric on Spotify, um, on Acast, on iTunes. I believe we're still up there, although I haven't checked for a while. Um, and you can contact us on Consistently Eccentric at gmail.com, which I don't think I've ever told people on our actual podcast. <laughs> well, there you go. So there Has you anyone go. actually emailed you? I've had three emails, one telling me, and this is genuine, that cows are not displayed for um, sale on a Lazy Susan. Okay, <laughs> right. What does, what does that even mean? It, it was linked to something like the Enigma code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> someone else told I me they had a 1955 season. Rupert the Bear comic uh, that they found in their house and they wondered if we wanted it. Uh, and somebody else was trying to sell me something to it enlarge my manhood and I didn't reply (laughs) 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 oh my goodness me Um, Joe what's happening in year two of your podcast oh you you want me to plug you yes Ollie (laughs) (laughs) uh, regular guest on the podcast from year two and hopefully because we'll be out of covid we can organize to meet up because I've been allowed to borrow a laptop so I can now be mobile and I can record wherever which Joe, is exciting. I've, I've been in your house already. <laughs> like, we've met up. Like, yeah. Um, yes, no, but I'm very excited. I was very honoured to be asked to be a regular, um, one of your many talented hosts. I think so the problem is exciting. I take too much joy in gory stories. Um, and the, the regular hosts that I have are worried about my mental health and don't really want to hear about <laughs> hangings and all that kind of stuff. And I know you'll be up for it, so... Because I'm just as mental, is that what you're yeah, saying? Win-win. Yeah, win-win. Pretty much, pretty much. Yes, so it's exciting. Um, Caitlin, what about yourself? I'm Caitlin Weldon. I run the Instagram account at The Active Historian. I have a website, theactivehistorian.com, 
where you can find links to my blog and my YouTube channel, and I have a Twitter and a Facebook, and I also have a Pinterest, so like all the links are on my website, and I talk about history tips, stories you didn't typically hear in history class, and I take you around the different museums in Oklahoma, so check it out. I, I find it really interesting, obviously, uh, not being an American, it's, it's really uh, nice to see uh, a different side of things, because most of my friends are British, so it's quite nice to see... Um, the American side of things. So it's a really good account. So I suggest that you go and follow it. It's great. Thank you. Um, who have I missed? Chris. Wow. Wow. What a way to sign off, eh, mate? Sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, fine, sorry. The, the, the dribbler. Continue. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're just making it better. Um, oh, apparently I've got a Zara order waiting to collect I didn't know I had one anyway um, <laughs> yes so you just promoted Zara <laughs> yeah big up Zara I guess um, yeah so I am uh, Chris Riley regardless of what it says on this zoom screen that's a, a conversation for another day um, you can find me on Instagram at Chris Riley history uh, at on Twitter as well similar to Jackson it didn't all fit so I'm at Chris Rye R-I history uh, I've just started that so don't expect much from there um, I also have a website that I'm a part of called, uh, and it's the historycorner.org, which is a blog website review site that I share with a couple of different people. Um, we have articles, book reviews, film reviews, game reviews, all that kind of stuff, all history based. Um, that's great. Check that out. Uh, I'm also very, very fortunate to be part of the Historians Magazine team. Um, which you can find on Instagram at Historians Magazine. Um, by the time this comes out, I'm assuming edition three will be out, which is all about key events that changed the world, including the um, Muslim conquest of Spain in the 8th century. We have articles on the Great Exhibition, um, the Battle of Hastings, written by yours truly, um, and all sorts of other stuff. So yeah, keep your eyes out for that. And that's me. Oh, amazing. I have a question for you, Chris, quickly before we yeah. disappear. So you recently did a competition about um, uh, winning a magazine. Yes. Why did I not win? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. That's a wonderful question. Um, and I will put it to the rest of the editorial team. Please um, do. I'm sure we can get one sent to you, Oliver, um, as you're a continued um, support of everything I do and everything the magazine has done, I'm sure we can get that sorted. Wonderful. Thanks guys for, for all coming on. It was um, less chaotic than I thought it was going to be and I hope everyone got to say what they needed to say. Mm. Um, uh, I might edit your football chat out, I might not, who knows? <laughs> was, was that, do you know, that's why I contained it to five minutes, because I was like, do you know what, what I'll do is I'll let them talk about it and I'll just cut the whole thing out. <laughs> but Chris did a really good segue, so you can't... Yeah, that's true. Oh, that's that's a great point. I didn't mention the fact that um, apparently a report came out since Mo Salah joined Liverpool, uh, hate crime towards Muslims has gone down in the city of Liverpool and the surrounding area, oh, which just horrific. goes to show how when you have a, you know, a cultural touchstone to something, it's much harder to hate it when you've got a, you're interacting with it. But yeah, seriously, 16% it's gone down. I forgot to mention... an Egyptian king. There you go. I forgot to mention, I went to school with someone who used to play for West Ham. Little fact for you there. What, Jay Cartwright? Yeah. I'm just about to say the joke in between us. No, it's can you imagine? No, it's a guy called Jack Collison. 
Um, who, Did you, you have trials posh? at West Ham, Ollie? What's that? <laughs> Did you have trials at West Ham? No. Uh, uh. Do I look he like played for posh, though, he did. <laughs> Do I look like a flex? Yeah. You're all awful. I'm going. Really? No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, thank you, thank you I, everyone, I for joining I had trials for Liverpool me. once. It didn't end well. <laughs> did you actually? I did, yeah. I got That's invited insane. Down to That's awesome. It, as soon as I arrived there, it was quite obvious I wasn't a good fit. <laughs> like, How did you get the trial? Like, did um, you have to... Were you spotted? They used to do a thing at summer football camps where there was a, a soccer star scheme and if you got five stars through all the trials they did, you automatically will get put forward for trials for a team. And I, I managed to get five stars. And I went to um, Liverpool's training ground for about six weeks. Uh, and wow. yes, I was not <laughs> Liverpool <laughs> material. Were you just like really tall for like a five-year-old? And oh then no, everyone, I, was just, like... I was very short throughout my entire life. I think that was it. I, I wasn't offered the same drugs that Lionel Messi was. <laughs> Unfortunately, they had slightly more scruples at Liverpool than they did at Barcelona, and willing <laughs> to drug a child. I asked. Uh, do you know, I'm going to end it on drug a child. <laughs> and you've been listening no. to the History Emporium and Palace podcast. Goodbye. No, um, no, no, no. Caitlin's no. <laughs> not coming on again. No. <laughs> no. So just, just edit me out. I'm done. <laughs> that you put on um, where there were the was it the tornado alarms is that what you heard yeah, they, oh, there, there's a tornado sirens they test them every Saturday at noon where I'm from but like in my college town they tested them on the first Tuesday every month and like when my sister like moved up there it was so funny she like called me she's like Katie because that's what she calls me she's like what's going on I'm like it's, it's Tuesday they're, they're testing the tornado sirens like calm down it's fine it's tornado Tuesday you missed it. <laughs> you should have been like, oh, God, stop, drop, and roll. Just get on to something, quick. They you wouldn't, ever, they wouldn't know it. <laughs> like, have you, like, have you like, lived through a tornado? Is that, like, a really stupid question? Um, like, the closest I've ever had one come to me was my junior year of college. Like, I was up, it was finals week, and um, the tornado siren started going off. The, the, the tornado was probably 12 to 15 miles west of town, but, like, there's still, like, you need to take shelter. So, like, I'm going down to the basement of my dorm, like, calling my dad, who's, like, an hour and a half away. I'm like, I don't have, like, my phone doesn't have the signal in the basement. Where's the tornado at? And he's like, it's east or west of town. Like, you're fine. Like, just sit in the basement till you're, till it goes away. But, like, other professors actually made students come take their final while the tornado was going by. 
that's dedication to their craft. <laughs> like, I am a teacher, and you will learn, and you will do yeah. exams. That's it. Go I'd on, go sorry. to the I'd go to the exam, but I'd be expecting a little bump in the grade for the right bonus points. Yeah, <laughs> little tornado bonus. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever see the film Twister when you were younger? I've actually never watched Twister. I remember which seeing totally it like crazy. and being absolutely terrified. I was like, I'm never going to America. <laughs> like, <laughs> ever. Um, I've been three times, but not to the the states that you, yeah. Um, they call it Tornado Alley, so... Oh, well, there you go. Oklahoma, you've got the show as well, haven't you? Yep, so where the wind comes, we've been down the plains. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, anyway, nice to speak to you properly after interacting yes. on um, uh, Instagram for so long. Um, do you guys all want to introduce yourselves to each other? I know.